Well, I've talked about subjective reality and intersubjective reality, but we haven't really delved into what that word means. Reality. You hear it <laughs> maybe not every day, but fairly often. And I think that on its own makes it definitely worth examining, if, <laughs> if not for the added reason that what it means tends to be a concrete understanding of existence. So, welcome to this episode on reality, and welcome to the subjective space. First, let's look at this common conception of reality. The way we talk about it in a not clearly defined way. Now, the easiest way to interpret this would be through a physicalist uh, point of view. That being an understanding of the universe which is solely based on physical reality. Or, given the uh, topic of our conversation, it might be clearer to say the physical universe. Now, I see three elements to this common conception of reality, those being immersion, consistency, and authenticity, with those being the primary ways we relate to this idea of reality and establish it as something real. Now, I'm going to briefly go over them in uh, altogether, and then investigate them individually later on. Now, the first one, immersion, would obviously be the most subjectively situated element of these three aspects, as the absence of it would pose an experiential separation. It'd be the difference between being engrossed in a film while sitting in a cinema versus having it playing in the background on your telly while you do something else. Next would be consistency. Because while you're immersed in your dreams, they're not going to be consistent within themselves or in a broader period of time. And consistency isn't just uh, the fact that you can check your watch, look at something else, check it again, and it shows the same time, which doesn't really happen in dreams, but also the long-form nature of existence within what we call reality. Finally, and this is this is the one that interests me the most, is this idea of authenticity. It's so important to people. Because I, personally, I don't understand the anxiety people feel about simulation theory. This idea that we're living in a simulation. But I've had it explained to me by a friend that the fear there is missing out on a realer reality that uh, by being simulated this would be inauthentic therefore it would be less real it wouldn't be a, a true reality and we will get back to that but first let's return to this idea of immersion especially as it constitutes art I've used this example before, but I think that video games are a really excellent way to conceptualize this idea. Because if, if you're immersed in a video game, which is generally seen to be a desired quality in video games, 
the concern over authenticity slips away, and you might get the impression that there is a consistency to your interactions. And likewise, you would be using the same faculties of interpretation to interact with this world in the video game as you do to interact with our world. So let's look at that faculty of immersion more closely. What's different with this? Well, obviously it's not the default. It would be strange to suggest that uh, we're immersed in reality, even though that is the case, because it, it's the default. It's just taken for granted. And this goes back to that idea of consistency. Even if I've played Red Dead Redemption 2 long enough that part of me forgets I'm not Arthur Morgan, at a certain point I'll set the controller down and I'll go get some water or have some toast and return to being immersed into this more long-term consistent experience of, well, existence. Because even when I'm playing video, even whenever I'm immersed in a video game, there's still the body on the couch being immersed in that video game. Ergo, the subjective aspect of this experience is still localized in the same space, but the focus of said subjective experience has shifted outwards onto something beyond my own two eyes. I've also had this experience while reading. I remember uh, reading Fight Club on the bus and being very immersed in this passage where uh, <laughs> I almost said Edward Norton, uh, the narrator. You know, it doesn't just say Edward Norton. Edward Norton's in, in Ireland in this, this section of Fight Club. And as I'm reading that, I completely forget the world around me and have this just jarring sensation of looking up for my book and having to adjust the fact that, oh yeah, I, I am in Ireland. This is... <laughs> throws you off a little bit. Now, it seems interesting that with nothing but paper, ink, and the written language, I can become so engrossed in a story that I experience genuine confusion <laughs> as to what country I'm in. Furthermore, there's a disturbance to the temporal aspect of existence and immersion. Hours can go by unnoticed, seemingly in an instant, when you're very much engrossed in a work of art, or you're busy, or you're engaged in a series of activities which take all of your focus and attention. It's, it's that strange experience of the vacation lasting five minutes, and the travel to and from lasting five years. So, when we really look at immersion, we can sort of throw a wrench into consistency, at least in terms of temporal consistency. Time moves ever forward, but the pace seems to be circumstantial. 
So we give this this wide berth to this common conception of reality, this idea that what we're experiencing is real. It's something people invest themselves in emotionally. But our, our conception of reality is inherently going to be limited by the limits of our knowledge. There is going to be a horizon on what we're able to understand and detect and explain. And it's all based on the cognitive and perceptive biological factors that we have to interact with the world around us. And it seems rash and foolish to suggest that the entirety of existence falls within the purview of what is observable and comprehensible by humans. And I, I say that to say this. We make this hard line between uh, reality insofar as eating a bowl of stew in real life versus eating a bowl of stew in Red Dead Redemption 2. I keep bringing it up because it's a great game. And, and, and I'm not denying that there's a separation there. But rather, pointing to this, this question of authenticity, this question of permanence, but in, in terms of immersion, because we'll get to those in a second, I think it's worth considering, it's worth questioning, whether our immersion in reality, this, this idea of reality we have, isn't similar to when we're immersed in a video game or a book, and that we might be limiting our understanding and consideration of reality by placing it in purely anthropocentric terms. And this brings us to the idea of consistency within reality, with the benchmark being the longevity of our consistent experience of what we call reality. And this easily contrasts with our discussion on immersion, because there's obviously a uh, lack of long-term consistency when it comes to immersive media. No matter how long we're playing a video game, we will, we will come back to this consistent experience of this one idea of reality. No matter how immersive a film is, or a dream is, we'll wake up, we'll get out of it, the film will end, we'll wake up, and this life will be continuing. And I think at this juncture, we can start to approach the ideas of reality within the uh, split categories of subjective reality and intersubjective reality, because it, th those two categories are reflective of our uh, the way in which we interpret this thing that we would colloquially call reality. Because, uh, simply put, within our subjective reality, well, the thing that we would consider to be reality from our standpoint as a subjective existing entity are the things that we can perceive as being consistent. Like, I wake up in the same apartment every day. Whenever I record, it's the same microphone. It's the same room. And the, the things that I did yesterday affect today. Things I do today will affect tomorrow. There's a consistency to that process. 
within my subjective reality. Now, well, we will get into the idea of authenticity, uh, but I feel like whenever we're talking about subjective reality, that's not really a consideration because it's just what I am experiencing. It doesn't matter if everything from waking up in my apartment to recording to going out into town, if that is just completely false, if that's not reflective of some overarching reality or intersubjective reality, whatever, I'm still experiencing it. It is my reality, and it is consistent. Ergo, that is my default when considering what is real, what is reality. I'm going to default to my interpretation of the sensory input, the data that's coming into me from uh, various sources, whether it's engaging with the internet or just the, the various senses of, uh, you know, sight, smell, taste, etc. And this is really the, the sort of crux of why I wanted to talk about reality, because whenever you talk about subjective reality, it's very important to just uh, emphasize that it is a subjective experience. Like, the reality of it, whenever we say reality within that context, the subjective reality, is that it's fulfilling those factors of being immersive and consistent. And again, we'll get to authenticity, but that's not really a factor. It's a consideration, but it's not necessarily impactful. Like, the the entire point of delineating subjective reality is that authenticity is not guaranteed. That's not a factor. Not to imply that it is a factor regarding sub- intersubjective reality, but simply saying that if, if we were to take intersubjective reality as authentic, that is not guaranteed with subjective reality in the way we're discussing it. Therefore, we need to go to the next step of looking for consistency within intersubjective realities. To reiterate, because consistency within subjective realities is more or less irrelevant. Again, think about when you're dreaming. You could easily consider that a form of subjective reality. It just doesn't have that long-term consistency. The same with playing a video game, watching a movie. You are there, you are immersed. That is your reality as far as your... uh, perception is concerned that is your reality and that's why I really want to drive home the importance of the intersubjective aspect of reality because whenever we we talk about reality we assume that there's this stationary thing this solid reality that is being interacted with by various subjects However, that's extremely assumptive. I mean, our interpretation is inherently based in 
our subjective apprehension of the external so that so to to suggest that our perception is a an entirely accurate measure of said external it's patently ridiculous even with scientific studies all we can achieve is intersubjective reality an understanding of intersubjective reality because our knowledge is going to be anthropocentric it's going to be based on human apprehension human perspective like what i i what i always keep in mind is the mantis shrimp because it has uh the the ability to see so far many more colors than we are and what's important to that to me even though that's qualitative information i don't i don't want to get into the jackson debate of whether the perception of color is new information whether that is qualitative whether it's quality that that whole discussion that's not important right now but for the mantis shrimp we know we can detect that there's something we don't have access to and the thing i always come back to is the question of well we know there's something that is inaccessible to us how much is out there which we don't even know where we can't even know that we don't know it like that idea of physicalism where and we'll get into this next month when i talk about ontology where the idea of composite is just patently ridiculous to me not to reuse the phrase but again i don't write scripts i just have bullet points and i i like talking about philosophy and while i'm thinking about it i just want to uh give a full disclosure on how i make this because like and 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 this is why like i'm i'm recording this at like the 11th hour like a lot of the format of the show of how i make it how it turns out is dependent on sort of what i'm able to do and uh what method of creation will allow me to keep doing this because I, I i love doing it i really do it's that um i i don't want to get into my my personal health details but uh suffice to say there are numerous obstacles to me making this podcast and i um the way i plan to do it is in order to work around those obstacles so i can make sure that i'm putting something out every month that's why it's monthly again i don't want to make a big deal out of it but you know the show the show is impacted and i i do want to be able to make something where people can enjoy philosophy and get something out of it and i i just want to be upfront about that you know not not hold anything back aside over sorry about that but whenever we're talking about the subjective our understanding of reality is filtered through that like whenever i talk about the microphone in front of me as i often do i feel like the my my microphone is 
much like a chair in a college philosophy class. If you've ever had the privilege of being in one, that is, <laughs> that's the go-to example, because it's just there. But whenever I talk about the microphone in front of me, I am imposing the uh, idea that it is distinct from the rest of reality uh, around me. But if, if we lean into, if again, we lean into this physicalist understanding of uh, composite uh, objects, then this microphone's made of atoms, which are made of neutrons, protons, electrons, which are made of quarks and larks and all that, quantum physics. But what I'm saying with this idea of the, the limits of knowledge is that eventually we'll hit a point of what our instruments can measure, what we can observe. And some people, like people who adopt a physicalist philosophy, will say that there is the the principal unit. There is the smallest uh, aspect of existence that we can find. But what I would say is that it, what we can find is the smallest aspect that we are able to observe. Because consider the idea that, I mean, we're, we're in a three-dimensional reality, or we, we can observe three dimensions, three spatial dimensions. Imagine that uh, whenever we get to that principal component of reality, con consider the idea that it is composed of fourth dimensional, the interlocking of fourth dimensional uh, aspects or ideas or components, however you want to phrase it, where instead of being composed of, uh, to, to use the, the atom as a, an example, suppose that if the atom was the smallest thing that we could observe, consider the idea that those components, proton, neutron, electron, were made of a substance or aspect of reality we are unable to observe. We're unable to comprehend. So, in, in the sense that the electron, proton, neutron are fourth dimensional elements that create the atom. And what I'm proposing is that that idea would happen with the principal element. The smallest observable thing is that you could go smaller. It is composed of things. It's still composite, but it's not composed of things that we're able to observe. So again, the consistency we use to delineate life, reality, is still based in the subjective because it is determined by what we can know physically physiologically what we can understand and know as humans even within the intersubjective 
It's just that when you get to the interest objective, you get that confirmation that what you're perceiving is being perceived by another person, by another uh, experiential locus, another subject. So if I'm perceiving my microphone and my partner perceives my microphone, we can confirm that, that it is something that exists outside of my, or is based outside of my subjective reality. But we cannot confirm that our apprehension of it is accurate. All we can say is that, well, it's consistent. Consistently, if I were to bring everyone I know into my apartment to look at this microphone and tell me, do you see what I see or something along the lines of what I see? All they could do is confirm that their perception matches with mine, but the actual nature of what we are perceiving is beyond us. And that brings us to authenticity. Because that's really the thing in the back of our heads. Like, especially with this distinction between the subjective and intersubjective. Because this idea of the intersubjective isn't just that it's being confirmed by a third party. It's, you know, peer, the existential peer review. But that there's something consistent there. And that seems authentic. And it's very, very important to people that things are authentic. And that's, that's something that's never made sense to me. And I've, I've said this up before. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not delving into a completely new territory. But simulation theory is what I've, I've referenced before. This idea that we're living in a simulation that nothing is actually real, is the Matrix Neo, or, you know, Descartes' idea of the deceptive demon brain in a vat theory, or there, this thought experiment of if there was a box you could step into and you could live your best life, would you do it? And with, with these ideas of immersion and consistency, we can see that it's an arbitrary question and we will get into the modal realist perspective that the idea of real is arbitrary. It's meaningless. But right now, what I want to bear down on is this question of authenticity. Of, well, what if this is a simulation and there's a more real reality lying above us, metaphysically above us? And I think it's silly. I think it's... I mean, it's worth discussion, it's worth considering, because it's a possibility, but I don't think it is a reputable possibility. Because if, if, if you and I are a simulation, if we are ones and zeros, that is our reality. That is the essence of our existence. And that's why ontology is, is the natural follow-up to this conversation. And why I wanted to discuss this before I talked about ontology. Because originally, 
this was going to be my ontology episode, but I realized that, well, the nature of reality is fundamental to considering the nature of existence. But if we are based in ones and zeros, if that is a foundational essence of our existence, then the, the I, I guess if we wanted to say that, that the meat space that exists without, uh, outside of our simulation, that's not reality. That's not more real. It's a different aspect of reality. We cannot exist in meat space if we are made of uh, digital code. So what I'm saying is that reality is dependent on the experience. It doesn't matter whether this is a simulation or not. To us, it is reality. There's nothing more we can get out of it. There's no uh, more more real baseline we can appeal to. And I mean, I, I, I think this is a cornerstone of reincarnation because it's, it's not that the thing that makes up the consistency, the overarching line of our reincarnated beings is more real, that that's reality. Like, no, this is existence. This is experience. This is reality. It's just whenever we're talking about reincarnation, it is the way I picture it is like stepping back, stepping out from existence, taking a second, and then going back in under a new guise. It's, it'd be like leaving a costume party, changing, and coming back in. You weren't in the costume party when you were changing. You weren't in a more real existence or a, a different aspect of the costume party while you were changing. It's just that you weren't participating in the costume party while you were changing. And that that is how we would react or how we would interact with reality within a... Uh, nature of existence that includes reincarnation. It's not that there's something more real, it's just that uh, the question is, are you participating or not? If not, then it, it's more a question of when you're going to change your costume come back in. Not to suggest there's some sort of solid self existing outside of reality, outside of existence but I'm more so indicating my suspicion towards the um, ego-based nature of self like you'll you'll never hear me talk about like personal identity or self beyond me saying that it's bunk that it's just there's there's the individual there's this localized experiential aspect of being but, like, it's, it's not one specific thing. It's multiple things localized in the same space using the, um, with, with, with the localizer, the focalizer, however you want to phrase it, 
being the physiological, where there is this aspect of being, uh, th this biological aspect of something that can perceive acting as the basis for being and perception to be localized and working through that. Because, really, the only distinction between us and a tree is that our ability to perceive and understand and process is it's just infinitely more complex. But, really, really, when you come down to it, with this uh, experiential nature of existence, it's input and output. It's just a matter of how complex the machine is that accepts the input and gives the output. Trees do that. Trees communicate. There are the these things called... Um, it's like a mycorrhizal network. Just, just look up trees and fungus and network. But... Um, Trees are able to communicate, they're able to uh, make decisions on like, okay, these nutrient resources I'm putting into this network, because the, the uh, uh, fungal network that connects tree roots within forest also transmits nutrients. They can favor trees related to them. So you do get that basis of input and output, of, of processing of data, of responding to it. It's just a matter of complexity. So if I'm, so if I'm talking about how authenticity isn't actually an important facet when we're discussing reality, that it's the notion of authenticity and real reality is just arbitrary, meaningless, then what about fictional realities? When you open up a book, uh, what, what is that that you're experiencing? That level, that realm the characters are in? And you could say that it's, it's, it's just words on a page, it's just a story, it's just text, and we are interpreting that it's anything other than just ink on a page. And that's the interesting thing. Because, likewise, I mean, we're just interpreting that there is an intersubjective reality. That there is something consistent. I mean, that is what intersubjectivity is. The perception of multiple people that has that consistent basis. It's just that with fictional realities, it lies on the experiential level of temporality. It's uh, temporary, I mean. But, like, if, if you like Harry Potter, you can go back and read the books at any time, and maybe you'll interpret it differently with each reading, but, there's consistency there. And just the same, there's consistency for anyone else who reads those books. 
what is that? Is that a form of reality? Because it's consistent, it's immersive, and you can consider that it's authentic to the characters. And I, I, I think this is a very interesting question of third-party reality. Are we able to say that Ron, Harry, and Hermione are experiencing this world of magic or whatever? Could we say they exist within this world? Because, yes, it does just exist within our minds, but we could easily, easily argue that so does everything. Like, the is, the being, the existence of the things in front of me, my laptop, my notes, my microphone, is inaccessible to me. All that is accessible to me is my interpretation. My relationship to anything around me is wholly subjective. And if we continue to consider this idea of reality being based in experience and that if this is a simulated reality it is no less real to us because it is where we live it's what we experience ergo when I'm reading the Philosopher's Stone is that substantially any different from my reality if taken in regard to the characters contained within the text? And I, I, I think that to approach this question uh, properly, we need to return to Nietzsche, as I am want to do. Especially the idea of the world of truth versus the world of appearances. Now, Nietzsche argues, and I will do the same, that there's no world of truth. It's just varying levels of appearances. That what we say is false, what we say is not true, is just the, the aspects of appearance that's more easily falsifiable where it's more easy to find the errors, to find the inconsistencies, etc. But for the things that we consider to be truth, it's just that it's more difficult to find the errors, but that there's no consistency. And, like, this, this, this is very much based in this idea of perspectivism, that anyone's experience of reality is entirely distinct from anyone else's. And it, it, it's also a response to Kant, this idea of the noumena. And what Nietzsche is saying is that there's, there's no noumena. There's no solid world of truth. It's just appearances. There's just phenomena. And ontologically, the way he works out is through the, the theory of the will to power, that everything is will to power. And I, I'm unconvinced by that argument. And we will get into my reinterpretation of this idea next week. 
But what I want to draw from this is that idea of the world of appearances, or that everything is just appearances. That it's just various levels of interpretation. So, like, whenever we, we talk about reality colloquially, we take it as a given that there's something solid there. That it's a, it's a thing. It's a definable thing. But I would argue that it's, it's more loose than that. It's more qualitative and experiential. And whenever we talk about reality... Usually, we're referring to subjective reality, but it, it's sort of being filtered through uh, intersubjective reality, because you very rarely talk about reality while just, like, on your own. But as long as there's not, like, a uh, discrepancy between your reality, intersubjective reality, the subjective reality of another person you're not going to be referring to anything other than your experience of what you think of as reality. And that finally brings us to modal reality. This idea of... It's essentially multiverse theory, but more in the realm of questioning this idea of real. Because whenever we talk about modal reality or modal realism, the idea of real is meaningless. That there are infinite realities, there's infinite uh, aspects of existence, there's infinite ways that we can exist. And when we talk about real, it is, it really does come down to just which one we're experiencing. So, talking about, like, oh, well, the reality where uh, JFK was never shot. Saying, like, is that more or less real than this? It, it, it's meaningless. Like, what are you experiencing? What is the reality you are experiencing? Or at least that's my interpretation. Because the papers on realism don't... <laughs> don't really go into the subjective aspect, because that uh, uh, that area of philosophy sort of derives from more of the, the STEM realm of philosophy, where when you're talking to a modal realist, it's someone who's... It, it's usually someone who's very heavily involved in STEM and quantum mechanics and stuff like that. But the basic idea is that we are one of many. That there are various ways that our universe could be configured. And those theoretically do exist. And again, this is something I will go into more depth on uh, with my ontology podcast. Or my ontology episode next month. So to... <laughs> Tune in for that. And I, I'm very excited about it because I'll be starting off with the question of, like, why is there something instead of nothing? And that's very directly correlated with this idea of modal realism. But at the present juncture of discussing reality, there's not much more I can say 
than just highlighting the idea that real reality it's relative it's experiential because whenever we talk about what's real what's reality it is for the most part heavily subjective but more so intersubjective because whenever we talk about reality the thing that is real it is what is confirmed by the people around us like in uh theology the three components that that people usually use to break down what a religion is it comes down to belief behavior and belonging and you can see that only a third of it is solely the subjective and like for me i i distinguish the spiritual and the religious based on that idea that spirituality is inherently subjective in nature it's something you feel it's something you experience while the religious is something that is more uh i don't know if <laughs> objective feels like a weird word to use here but it's something more fixed where it is systematized it's uh like the way the way i i express it is that if you go to mass the mass being conducted the people in the building the uh sermon uh the rituals i probably should have uh selected mass as my example i'm not catholic i don't know what it looks like i've never been to mass but the actual ceremony would be the religious aspect but the feeling you have sitting in mass or sitting through a sermon just sitting through church experiencing that religious community experiencing that sort of top up on your religious experience your connection with god however you conceive of god that would be the spiritual that would be the subjective where the intersubjective would be the sort of behavior uh belonging aspect the communal the uh ritualistic aspect of said religion or said religious moment or experience or whatever and likewise whenever we're talking about modal realism reality isn't a thing it's talking about real doesn't really make sense it's it's not a quality like things are experienced or they're not like there's a reality where i'm having a an ice cream sunday right now and that's not real but it's not unreal like me as i am now just like having a beer is not more real than the reality where i'm having a an ice cream sunday they just are it's just that i'm experiencing this reality where instead of an ice cream sunday being my refreshment instead it's a cheap beer <laughs> and not not to get off topic but have you ever noticed that the cheaper an alcohol is 
whether it's a beer or a wine or spirit, the cheaper it is, the more likely it's labeled as premium. Like, I've never bought, like, a halfway nice, like, a mid-range whiskey and seen premium on the side of it. But every time I buy a cheap whiskey or vodka or beer, it says premium imported. Like, I, I, I live on an island. It, most things are imported. <laughs> it's, 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 imported is meaningless. And you're the cheapest product I can find in this, like, category. Are, are You're undermining the idea of premium. I don't know. That's, it, that's just something that's kind of weird to me. <laughs> Is that, uh, semantically, premium means high quality. But the only, like, branding that uses the word premium... At least as far as I can tell, and at least as far as alcohol is concerned, the the only branding that uses the word premium is literally the cheapest thing you can find. Or okay. So <laughs> that brings us to the, the final thing before we wrap up, which is the idea of post truth. Now, this idea gained my attention while I was doing a course on epistemology, or applied epistemology, to be more specific. Because, like, some people lump it in with fake news. In the sense that, well, it seems to be a fascist uh, rhetorical device. Where there's no such thing as fake news. I mean, that's, it's just a rebranding of Lugenpresse. Just a way of discrediting the the branch of not government but discrediting journalism as the the functionary of like delivering information about stuff that's going on to the people. So by saying Lugenpresse or fake news, you can undermine that relationship, undermine that uh, idea that there's some sort of access for the average person to know what's going on in a society in a somewhat accurate way. And with post-truth, it this sort of goes back to that idea of alternative facts and, uh, like, as you can hear from my accent, I'm in debt. I'm kidding. Well, I'm not really kidding. I'm, I am in, I'm, oh God, I'm so deep in debt. <laughs> but I'm, I'm American. So I, I grew up in America. And there's this Kellyanne Conway saying that, oh, well, you have your facts. We have ours. Like this is major deflection, which I, I hope was taken note of, but I don't know. Like, I, I try and keep up with American news, but in a, oh god, what are they doing now kind of way, more than a, you know, 
wanting to, to fully understand what's happening in America. Not to relegate or uh, treat all the, the tragedy and horror that is happening in the country I grew up in as a sideshow. But more that for my own well-being, I have to be kind of disengaged. Like, God bless the people that are still there and are keeping up with the increasing levels of ridiculous horror that is the American news cycle. Like, all I know is that at some point there were murder hornets, and that wasn't, like, the worst thing going on at that moment. So, it, for all my American listeners, I love you, I sympathize, I'm so sorry. And I hope you do understand that whenever I'm flippant about America and the situation happening there, it, it's more of just like a coping mechanism of... It, it, it's easier to be like, oh, well, you know, it's America and it's terrible. And I got out. And just, just have this like distance rather than, you know, have, have to process everything that's going on there while still going through my own thing of, like, being an immigrant and trying to get a solid footing there because, y'all, it's a lot of paperwork. Not as much as it would be if I was an immigrant moving to America, but... It's still a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and and just like a lot of things I have to have on my mind to um, make this a workable situation. Because like I, I've, I've built a life here. And there's some like legal hoops to jump through to make sure I can stay here and keep living the life that I've built. But, uh, speaking of non-sequiturs, post-truth. This idea that there's not really a solid ground upon which we can build our reality. That there is not truth, but there is multiple truths. And of course this is an epistemic problem, specifically with epistemic dependence on the fact we depend on other people to know what's going on in our world. And whenever we're in a system that, like America, where things are very divided, very partisan, and that there's multiple conflicting sources of information, you end up with a populace living in separate realities, where that intersubjectivism is divided within itself. Like, I, I've, I've talked on uh, previous episodes about this idea of, you know, whatever people talk about, oh, he, that guy's crazy, or um, things like that, where we see uh, people acting in a paranoid manner, for example, as crazy and irrational and whatever, but... They are behaving in a rational way. It's just that the stimuli they are responding to 
is localized to their subjective reality. Where if you thought people were coming to kill you, you would check your peephole, lock your doors, keep the lights off, yada yada yada. But if you were the only person experiencing that, if to everyone else that was just just ludicrous, then there there's that separation between the subjective and intersubjective realities. Now what's interesting with the case of say America is that it's not just subjective realities, it's diverging intersubjective realities where there are groups of people which have uh, ac- their access to information has been guided through their conservative media outlets that their understanding of the situation, what's going on, reality is wildly different from everyone else's because the information they're receiving is wildly different from everyone else's. And, like, as as usual, I don't like to bring in outside sources because I, I just want to consider the things that I know. I I, I just want to talk. Like, I, I'm not trying to create, like, a research paper. But I, I have seen data, I have seen studies which would corroborate the... Uh, effect of consuming a singular news outlet and you know which one I'm talking about but you 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 can find that and to just be more explicit there's uh, I, I believe I've seen a study where they made people who just watch Fox News watch CNN for like a week and report back uh, I, I'm just going to tell you to try and find and, and read that study because it's it's pertinent to our discussion, but it's it's not really what I'm focused on. So I'm I'm not going to waste too much time on it. So I I th- for me this idea of post truth is very Nietzschean, where it's it's sort of the modern extension of this. Uh, catastrophe of the idea of the death of God. And, of course, uh, Nietzsche doesn't mean God is dead literally. It, it's a reaction to post-enlightenment uh, that the role of religion in society is has slipped away. We are at sea. Not only have we burned our bridges but the land itself is destroyed. We are at sea, and there is not even a starry sky above to guide us. Because it's quite natural to organize ourselves within the community. But beyond that, for much of human history, we've depended on religion to be the thing that unites us in morality, in purpose, in consideration of the world like it's no accident that 
pre-enlightenment, religion was a facet of existence in every stage, in every way. Because for societies that are organizing beyond the community, they need that consistency. And we no longer have it. And, like, I, I, I understand that whenever I, I take the Nietzschean post-moralist stance of, like, well, m moral value judgments are meaningless. They're not based in anything. It seems nihilistic. And, and again, Nietzsche has, like, admits in his work that, like, yeah, there's a nihilistic streak to it. But it's, it's coming from that environment. It's coming from a nihilistic environment because it wants to address that. It wants to contend with, well, we're not using religion as our source of meaning. Now what? How do we keep from becoming nihilists? How do we find meaning in a secular way? But whenever you, you start talking about that, of like saying that like morality is not like a, it's not objective. The morality is more of a facet of society than anything else. People will say, oh, so you're a nihilist. So you don't believe anything. You don't think anything has meaning. Uh, well, why, why don't you just kill your dog if you don't believe in anything, if nothing has any meaning? And that it, it's just so wildly off base. And I don't blame people for having this opinion because the a vision of nihilism that's sort of propagated by the media fits within this, this comfy uh, box. It's so nice and easy to relegate things to an unnuanced just box. But, like, I... Like, again, I'm, I'm coming from a Nietzschean perspective. I think that we create meaning. We have to create meaning. Because nihilism is so bleak. But the, the problem here, the reason why I take issue with the idea of morality is that black and white nature, this idea of good and evil. Because no, no one wakes up in the morning thinking, Oh, I'm going to be evil. Oh, I'm going to be a bad person. Most people who do terrible things wake up thinking they're heroes. I mean, people who bomb abortion clinics think they're saving lives. And that's, that's the issue, is that if you come down to good and bad, you have this narrative that people you disagree with can and will glom onto. The worst atrocities of history have been justified by their participants on moral terms. So whenever, whenever I talk about morality in this sort of dismissive way, it's not that I think that, you know, everything is permissible, it's fine, it's your own reality, blah, 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 blah. It's that I, I, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that as long as we keep alive this paradigm of good and evil, 
people will use that to justify doing terrible things. Because, again, going back to the abortion clinic bomber example, that person, you and I might say, well, that's, that's terrible, obviously. You're bombing a healthcare facility. You're killing people. How are you pro-life? But in their mind, they're saving lives. And again, I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, every perspective, your reality is reality. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that as long as we continue to legitimize, or legitimize this paradigm of good and evil, you're going to have people who do terrible things and tell themselves it's for the greater good, that they are doing good, they're doing God's work, whatever. Because really it comes down to, it, it, it's never individuals. It's systems. We have very, very little control of who we are, how we act, our placement in the world. And yes, we it's mutable. We have the ability to change it. But it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's odds. It's probability. Most people will go to the place that they're directed to. The path of least resistance. Most people are unexceptional, by definition. So we have to look at the systems. I went off on a little rant there. So let's let's get back to the idea of post-truth. So with this divided sources of information, with this divided intersubjective reality... What is post-truth? It's not saying that there's nothing consistent, there's nothing uh, beyond our subjective realities, but rather the interpretation has had a wrench thrown into its gears. Because whenever we talk about post-truth, it's not saying that there's no you know, consistent reality. Because, obviously, it, it even if we're completely unable to access the noumena, or even if it's not something uh, solid in the way that we would conceive of that, there is something there which exists, which is consistent, which we can consistently observe, other people can observe, and um, confirm that that exists. No, it's it, it's not saying that. Well, ex- reality is relative in itself, man. It's your own reality. No, 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 no. It's social. When you talk about post-truth, it is a social statement that we are at a point in our society in the way we share data, information yada 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 that we cannot know and in fact we know that it is not the case 
that not everyone has the same information. People aren't working on the same information. And when large, large swaths of the population have conflicting ideas on what is, what is happening with their society, what reality is, I think it is helpful to have a name for it. Just call it post-truth. That we are 50 years out from Walter Cronkite. The closest, like, Americans have is, you know, a, a, a parrot with astigmatism. Not to suggest that I have anything against John Oliver. I do, but I don't want to suggest it. But I, I, I think it's worthwhile to keep in mind that, generally speaking nowadays, there, there are people who, the, the context of their existence, the world they exist in, the intersubjective reality they exist in, is wildly different from other people. I'm not saying it makes it right, or makes it real, or makes it good, or anything like that. But, I think it's worthwhile to step back and have some sympathy. Because it, it, it's so easy, it's so tempting to demonize your enemies. And that just doesn't work out. I'm not saying that you should make your you know life goal to convince every Fox News viewer that they're being shoveled a bunch of garbage. But rather to just consider people in a compassionate way of... Uh, like, I, I think it is fully possible to stand up against injustice to make it clear that hate and bigotry is unacceptable and unwelcome and that you will not take that lying down. That you, you'll stand up against it. I, I, I think it's possible to do that. To be active in fighting hatred and oppression and these unjust systems while also practicing unconditional love and radical acceptance. Because, really, it's a matter of changing the system. Yelling at random people online isn't going to do anything. The fundamental system has to be changed, and when that's changed, the people within said system are also going to change. So, yeah, we're in this moment of quote-unquote post-truth, but all we have to do is confirm the reality we can see. That's the advantage we have that the other side doesn't, that they will never get. That call it reality, call it consistency, but the facts are on our side. I don't know, like, <laughs> this episode got a little messy. Like I, like I mentioned before, I, I'm dealing with a, um, I, I guess it's a medical situation. I don't know, but thank you for listening. This was a uh, little bit longer than the the average episode. 
I guess I had more to say than usual. I'll be honest, from my uh, bullet points, I thought this one would be a bit short, but Jesus Christ, we're over an hour and ten minutes. Wow. Wow. Uh, again, thank you for listening. Next month, we'll be talking about ontology. So, fundamental nature of existence. Why is there something instead of nothing? Can we philosophically justify ghosts and ghouls and demons? That's a fun end of the episode. I'm sorry, but the rest of it's going to be really technical. Probably, I don't know. The Curious Cat is still up. I'm not going to put it in the description because... Again, my body hurts, so I, my, my, uh, the way I'm shaving the podcast is dependent on the fact that I have trouble existing, so if you can find the curious cat, and it's very easy, I might answer it, but I'm, I'm leaving it off from here on out because I, I just don't know that I'm able to do it, I'm able to keep up with that. But uh, there is a Facebook page, facebook.com slash the subjective space. I post a lot of philosophy memes, which has been fun. Just <laughs> just taking like an hour to just look up, just steal memes and throw the ones that make me laugh onto it. And, uh, you know, don't don't forget to... Uh, I'm, I'm still stuck. I, I don't know... If you like and or subscribe to... You subscribe to podcasts, right? I mean, it'll... Even if I don't see it in my metrics, you will get access to... Well, access isn't the right word. You will be notified <laughs> whenever whenever a new one comes out. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, I, it, it, it's fine. I, I don't actually care that much because it doesn't really matter. Because... If you, if you if you want to listen you you got to listen uh 23rd of every month is when i'm posting these and um i i hope you will listen next month cuz that's going to be a weird one i've been looking forward to it for uh as long as i've been doing this podcast like you can listen back i'm i have been talk i've been hyping the ontology episode forever so i'm very excited about that i hope you are too and thank you for listening to this episode on reality and thank you for listening to the subjective space